You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking rates and lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Mohammed filling in on the audio road for Kevin Rutherford tonight. Uh, this is the weekly podcast. We're coming to you live from Kansas City at the CMC, and we have a very, very special guest on tonight, so I'm going to touch on what we normally touch on at the beginning of the show with the trend lines, but I'm not going to go into any depth with it. We're just going to touch it real quickly because we don't want to take any time away from our special guest tonight. So as of this week, according to the DAT trend lines, for the week of April 27th through May 3rd, the national average for van rates has slipped another $0.08 cents this week. Last week, it was that um, drop from $1.95 per mile. The average also lost eight, $0.08 cents compared to March. So vans is dipping a little bit right now. In the flatbed segment, we are experiencing, for April 27th through May 3rd, the flatbed rates have added a penny to their national average as of last week, climbing to $2.36 per mile. The April average was $2.35, which was 2.2% above the March rates. And for reefer segments, the one that's near and dear to my heart, the weekly rates dipped to $2.26 for April 27th through May 3rd. The national average for reefer rates lost two cents last week to 2.26 per mile, dropping below April's average. For more details, of course, go to our Facebook page. We, got a, we have a link posted up on the Rate Per Mile Masters Facebook page. And real quickly, jumping into the USD, uh, fruit, USDA fruit and vegetable truck rate report. Right now, produce is uh, the produce season is in full swing, of course. They are showing a shortage in the Imperial Valley, California areas, Central and North Florida. Blueberries are coming out of there right now. They're showing a shortage of trucks in those areas. And also South Florida and South Georgia. You have melons still coming out of South Florida, and they also have blueberries, which I got a load of last week out of South Georgia. And Eastern North Carolina is still moving some sweet potato loads. They're still showing a shortage in those areas. There is a slight shortage going on right now in the lower Rio Grande and Mexico crossing down in Laredo and Brownsville and those areas at the border of Texas, and there's a shortage, a slight shortage at the Mexico crossing through Nogales, Arizona. So real quickly, like I said, that was what I wanted to jump into real quick on as far as the rates are concerned. And this week, our special guest is Henry Seaton of the Law Offices of Seaton and Hustle. Henry is a industry, he is one of the top industry experts, I feel, as far as he has wrote, written the book, Protecting Motor Carriers' Interest in Contracts. I posted a link to uh, Henry's book a while back after tonight's podcast. I'm definitely going to post another link to uh, his book. It's still available. He also has another book that he's going to be publishing very soon. Um, so I want you guys to definitely get some pen and paper together. If you have any questions, Henry's going to be touching on a few different subjects tonight, but we're going to, it's going to be conversational. So if you have any questions, I see a bunch of people on the line. Remember to push number one so we can get you in queue, and we'll get to you as soon as we possibly can. But with that said, I'd like to bring on our special guest for tonight, Mr. Henry Seaton. Mr. Seaton, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Rico. Uh, and and welcome to the podcast. As, as Rico mentioned, uh, 
Uh, I'm a transportation lawyer. I've been representing uh, uh, trucking companies primarily for the past 40 years. And approximately 10 years ago, I wrote a little book called Protecting Motor Carrier Interests and Contracts. It's a, it's available now electronically, uh, and it's aimed primarily for uh, the small trucker. It covers a number of issues, including uh, things like owner-operator contracts, uh, uh, factoring agreements, insurance issues, uh, some freight claims, uh, the use of the uh, use of the bill of lading, service terms and conditions, and there's a substantial ch- uh, section on what we're going to be discussing tonight, which is the use of contracts and transportation. As part of that book, I d- developed a, uh, a uh, PowerPoint presentation entitled "The Dirty Dozen," which is really 12 uh, contract provisions that you'll almost uniformly see in shipper and broker contracts you're asked to sign. Uh, We're going to get down into the weeds tonight and go over those uh, contract provisions, show you how uh, they can affect your bottom line and how you can and should modify those uh, provisions. But before we do, I'd like to uh, just give you a 30,000-foot overview of what I think are the uh, current major contracting issues that affect the viability of small carriers. I think one of the consistent issues is the uh, payment problem. Most of you are probably aware that MAP 21 has been passed and that the uh, amount of surety that a broker or forwarder must have has now been increased to $75,000 and there are definite penal limits out here for people who uh, arrange for transportation and don't have a broker's license. But unfortunately, in my practice, uh, seeing uh, uh, brokers uh, or intermediaries uh, go into default owing hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars, is is not uh, an infrequent occurrence. So it's still a major issue to uh, be sure that you credential who you're doing business with it. We'll talk a little bit later about techniques to uh, uh, ensure you get paid. And things like recourse to shippers and brokers is very important. The second issue that we'll be covering, and it shows up in in virtually uh, uh, all uh, shipper and broker contracts, is what we call the unilateral right to offset. By right to offset, what we mean is if a shipper or broker for any reasons, decides he has a claim against a motor carrier, he'll simply not pay and withhold that money pending resolution of uh, the dispute. And particularly small carriers are financially unable to uh, uh, withstand uh, a primary offset. Uh, let's assume that you have a freight charge that, uh, or a freight claim that your insurance company is slow in responding to. If all of a sudden, you have a, a, a fifty or hundred thousand dollar even deduction from your freight payments. Uh, that's a, a loss you can't sustain. If you've uh, been factoring your receivables and have recourse financing, uh, a single offset can be a spiral of death for a small carrier. So, uh, looking out for that offset language uh, is a major issue. The third major issue, I think, is one of uh, not really contracting, but it's an insurance issue. You're going to see in every contract that uh, the broker uh, or shipper is going to re- require you to have certain kinds of contracts, 
and to warrant, particularly that your cargo insurance will uh, uh, cover your liability. Unfortunately, many small carriers have poor insurance coverage that has loopholes which can cause problems. Uh, and the, the next issue that uh, that I see, uh, particularly working with small carriers, is a change in contracts uh, with respect to uh, cargo liability. We'll talk later about what your legal liability is under federal statutes, but all too frequently I'm seeing, uh, particularly in foodstuff shipments, uh, provisions in contracts that say that shipper will have the sole discretion to uh, accept or reject the shipment, that in his sole discretion he can dump it and send you the bill. Uh, your insurance isn't going to cover that. Uh, we can talk in greater detail. Uh, sometimes the wholesale grocery house just doesn't want to fool with the shipment. Uh, frequently they'll say, well, the load could have been contaminated because the seal is broken, but when you actually inspect it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the product. And then the last issue that will work its way into the dirty dozen is what we call vicarious liability. Uh, I've spent the past uh, four years of my uh, life really working uh, very hard with a, a group of similarly-minded people to deal with the, uh, the abuse of the SMS methodology and the fact that in many contracts now, shippers will shy away from using small carriers because of the SMS methodology. If you study uh, the way that this put together, it's bias against small carriers. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, trying to educate shippers and brokers that uh, they shouldn't penalize small carriers for licensed, authorized, and insured uh, by denying them freight is uh, is a major issue. And combating contract provisions, particularly in major shipper contracts, that say uh, the minute you have a Golden Triangle, you no longer have access to the freight, uh, is a is another important issue that we're trying to fight at the uh, at the federal level, uh, both to convince the agency to change its mind and to get some uh, hill oversight over the issue. So that's a, a brief summary, Rico, of uh, of some of the more important issues. Uh, if you'd like to take a uh, take some questions or uh, or drill down on any of that before we begin uh, uh, the, the the dirty dozen. That would be fine with me. Sure. Um, start right where you, where you where you ended it. There, the vicarious liability. We was having an interesting conversation last night. Some guys were sitting around, and someone brought up the subject that a lot of shippers are wanting to use brokers now for an extra layer of protection. What do you say about that? What are you What are your thoughts on something like that? Well, I have been an expert witness uh, on several occasions for shippers who uh, uh, are sued uh, uh, for that very, uh, uh, notwithstanding the fact there's a broker involved. In one of the more recent cases, a major grocery house on the East Coast uh, uh, hired a, a very uh, reputable truck broker uh, to arrange for the transportation of a load of watermelons. After the watermelons were delivered, the small carrier on the way home had a wreck. And plaintiff's bar trolled all the way up the supply chain to uh, the shipper who uh, uh, who hired the broker and named him in the lawsuit. 
So I don't think that that tactic works. When SMS methodology first came out, uh, we saw certain uh, uh, big players uh, attempt to take a run at the shipping public and saying, you can't afford to select carriers. You need to hire us because uh, we'll indemnify you and we'll take the hit. Uh, I think that's still a play that's made by some people to try to encourage uh, uh, business. But, you know, that in and of itself is anti-competitive because uh, a broker is only as good as his ability is to indemnify a shipper. If that came to pass, there'd be no small brokers. And, uh, you know, I think think there's certainly a space in terms of free competition for small brokers to work with small carriers. So, uh, yeah, I have seen that. I have I have seen uh, 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 large uh, uh, Wall Street backed uh, entities say, "Well, uh, we'll use SMS to our advantage." But I think hopefully the worm is turned. It's uh, now that the ATA and the TIA and OIDA have all uh, uh, come to realize that SMS methodology is. Uh, 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 not only misleading, it's it's prejudice to, to all parties. Uh, hopefully that will calm down a bit. Uh, but uh, uh, until we actually get that website taken down, I think it will remain a, a problem we'll have to deal with. So basically, just going back real quickly, does the vicarious liability, the brokers may be trying to use that as more of a sales tactic, but it's still not really it's, it's still not really that successful as far as a court case. If they don't do what they're supposed to do, there still is exposure no, there. There, 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 there are there are experts uh, that support the uh, uh, the plaintiffs bar who would uh, testify that liability runs all the way up the supply chain, and I guess as far as they're concerned, it stops if somebody's got deep enough pockets to pay it. Right, uh, twenty-five billion dollar judgment. So it's certainly uh, no uh, no uh, bar, uh, but uh, it, it, I think it's anti-competitive. You know that at the end of the day, the federal government sets the amount of liability insurance that a motor carrier, large or small, must have, and if uh, uh, a traveling public is involved. In a trek in a wreck involving a uh, commercial motor vehicle, they're at least going to have access to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They can be just as dead if they're run over by a four wheeler who has forty thousand so I think the the idea that uh, uh, liability should run up the supply chain and that uh, the minimum amount shouldn't be where the shipper and broker's liability ends is a is a fallacious argument. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, our position that uh, if a carrier is licensed to operate on the nation's roadway, it should be certified for use by shippers and brokers. And it's uh, it's difficult to believe that we're three years in the SMS methodology and that very simple uh, premise hasn't gotten more traction. Okay. And... Callers up here, we got a bunch of callers on the line. If you guys have any questions, we got a couple of guys that are in queue. But if you got any questions for Mr. Seaton, just hit number one so that we can get you lined up in queue and we'll know to come to you. 
when we're getting ready to take questions. Changing gears just a little bit, Mr. Seaton, um, I wanted to also cover the uh, one of the Daily Dozens on the waiver provisions. Uh, one thing that I notice all the times in, all, in a lot of the broker contracts that I receive is they want you to waive uh, all articles under USC 49. Uh, could you briefly maybe dig into that a little bit and drill down on that section? Yes, I, I'd be happy to. Uh, the question has been asked, if you don't have a contract, what applies? And the answer to that is there are general principles of federal transportation law and statutes that apply. If you enter a uh, a bill of lading contract and use the standard uniform bill or the truckload bill, which is most frequently what is issued by the shipper, or if you uh, have the foresight to publish a little rule circular uh, or your own terms and conditions that incorporate those terms and conditions, you basically have uh, what we used to call common carrier law. And as a result of that, you're responsible for the cargo loss or damage under the federal statute. You're responsible to deliver the shipment with the reasonable dispatch and the shipper uh, or the consignor is responsible to pay you. Well, the regulations say you're supposed to be paid within 15 days, but by contract you can extend that to 30 or, or 40 or whatever you choose. But there is basically uh, rules of the road that apply if you never sign a contract. And frankly, uh, my advice is that those rules of the roads uh, uh, give you not only duties and obligations as a carrier, they give you very important remedies and that it's a bad idea to just sign that waiver. When you look at a contract, it'll say, uh, the objectionable language typically reads, uh, the parties waive all rights, duties, and obligations permitted under Section 14101B. That basically says, if it ain't in this contract, it doesn't apply to you anymore. The accepted language really should be that general principles of federal transportation law and statutes apply. What you lose if you agree to a complete waiver is you lose claims and salvage rules. You lose the requirement that uh, uh, claims be filed within nine months. You can lose your recourse to the shipper if the broker doesn't pay you. Uh, you uh, uh, can lose the credit regulations. You can lose the requirement that the broker has to account for receiving the money has to segregate your money from uh, uh, buying his wife a fur coat. Uh, you can uh, uh, lose the ability to uh, limit your cargo liability. So uh, uh, I do a presentation in terms of 61 legal duties and obligations that are set up in federal statutes and in the Uniform Bill of Lading, and uh, each one of those uh, Several uh, 61 different things are items that can be lost by this waiver. I'll give you an example. On the bill of lading uh, contract, there's a provision that says that if the consignee wrongfully rejects the shipment, you can put the shipment in storage and charge uh, a warehousing fee and send him an on uh, hand notice and sell the goods for salvage if he doesn't pry, uh, provide for disposition. 
all too frequently when a load is rejected, uh, a small carrier doesn't know what to do with it, uh, doesn't have any uh, any document that allows him to uh, uh, place the load in a warehouse and go on about his business, and doesn't know how to issue an on-hand notice to the consignor and consignee or sell the salvage. Uh, all too frequently, people hauling uh, uh, refrigerated product uh, uh, don't know that the, the bill of lading uh, allows them to uh, to sell it for best advantage if they uh, uh, don't get contravening orders from the shipper and broker on, on immediate notice. So it's those kinds of underpinnings in transportation law that, that, that frankly, uh, 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 for many people who have entered the business in the past 10 years are unknown because uh, all too frequently we have to sign these contracts that are written on a blank piece of paper. Right, and, and just really going back, touching a couple of things real quickly, on the bill of lading, tying some of that together, I think you had already spoke about it, but using the standard bill of lading in Section 7, tying those together with the recourse. My question is, I guess the way I should formulate this question is, do you think, in your opinion, that the $75,000 broker bond would have been necessary if we would have just stuck to what was already in in effect as far as the negotiated rates and so on and so forth if we kept the um, wasn't trying to waive all these different rights if we just kept the, the simple process that we already, well, I ain't going to say simple, but it seems a little bit, in my opinion, it seems like it's a little bit better than what we have to deal with now. Well, there is nothing about the, the $75,000 bond that passed that that eliminates your recourse to the shipper if the bond doesn't pay you. The bond doesn't say the, that your only recourse is to the $75,000. Uh, it doesn't have a thing to do uh, with the fact that there's very good case law that says that unless unless you uh, waive your recourse to the shipper uh, or uh, deliver a shipment on which Section 7 is signed, that if the broker doesn't pay you, you can go back to the shipper for payment. Uh, where that comes into effect is in one of the dirty dozen, when, uh, uh, and I'm seeing it all too frequently now in shipper contracts uh, or in broker contracts. They'll say that you agree to appoint the broker as your agent for the collection of the freight charges and that you waive any recourse or even ability to contact the shipper. Right. Well, you know, that's really a, a very bad deal for the motor carrier because look at it this way. Uh, in every case I know about, uh, the, the broker is really the agent of the shipper because the shipper hired the broker to find the carrier. The carrier didn't go Absolutely. out and find the, the, the broker as his sales agent, so you really making a misrepresentation. But the effect of it is to say you've now got to credential that broker and know if that broker is credit worthy. Well, we, we all understand that if you're hauling for for, for General elect, uh, Electric or some shipper, uh, he he's undoubtedly got uh, got assets. He, uh, you know, he may be a Fortune 500, but he, he's got some substance besides a bank account and a desk. And if that you have to extend credit solely to uh, a broker, 
what then do you have to do is your due diligence to be sure you're going to be paid. Well, unfortunately, there's some very good credit referencing services that will show you how a broker has traditionally paid, but that doesn't tell you that that broker has got big enough reserves to take the bankruptcy of his largest shipper or that that broker will be able to pay you if his large shipper withholds a couple of hundred thousand dollars because some other carrier didn't handle a cargo claim correct. It's just, uh, right. I think, very difficult for a small carrier to uh, uh, financially credential a, a broker that he's uh, uh, meeting over the Internet. And we've all too okay. frequently heard the situation in which uh, the broker world wants to credential the carrier for very good purposes uh, to be sure that uh, they've got insurance, that they're substantial, that they're licensed, authorized, and insured. But uh, uh, you'd be hard-pressed if you turn that around on the broker and said, look, if you want me to extend credit to you, I need to see uh, your uh, uh, certified balance sheet and income statement. I need to know uh, how much... Uh, uh, accounts receivable do you got and what your accounts payable are and how deep your pockets are if uh, uh, something untoward happens to your receivables. So I just think it's a, uh, 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 you know, I'm not saying it doesn't have to happen, but I'm saying that it's really a pretty bad credit risk just to uh, sign something like that and uh, trust that, uh, uh, you know, Pete in Rancho Cucamonga is going to be able to pay you in 30 days. Right. Well, we got a couple of callers lined up with some questions, so we're going to go take a couple of questions and we'll jump back to jump back into it. Um, I don't have a call screen of the night, so caller from the area code 585. It's your turn. You're on the air. What's your name? What's your call? And uh, what are you calling about? How can we help you? Rico, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. You come in loud and clear. Yeah, let me let me drop my earbud. Rico, it's George Heck in Rochester. How are you? I'm well, sir. Yourself? Hey, a question for for you and Henry. And uh, regarding my background of sales, and does, my question is, does a signed DOL DOL release the carrier of all liability? Clear DR. Uh, the answer to that is is this. A bill of lading that you sign free and clear at origin and is delivered with a noted exception creates a rebuttable presumption that there is there was damage in transit. Similarly, if you get a clear BOL when you deliver it, that is a rebuttable presumption that there was no damage in transit. That doesn't mean that they can't file a claim and say it was concealed or they didn't check it or whatever, but they've got a big mountain to climb if, in fact, you have got a clear delivery receipt. Okay, that, that, that would – oh, it definitely makes sense, but it comes back to the other thing. And I don't run into this as much as I think many other people out here. I deal directly more so with my customers, but the situation of where they sign the – the bill of lading and say subject to inspection, subject to count. And, you know, I've had one or two customers try to do that. I'm like, no, let's sit here and count it then. You're, if I'm going to get a clear DR, I'm going to get it here right now. Uh, especially, if, you know, but, but I'm targeting more of a unique side of things. It, 
I, 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 I definitely agree with you uh, that uh, when they say subject to inspection, well, you know, if if they can't look at it at uh, at time of delivery, you've got a hassle. You know, we have seen far too long situations in which distributors would break their warehouse shortage over the carrier uh, by hitting box counts inside, shrink wrap, and all kinds of, of crazy concealed damages. Uh, and, you know, I, I agree with you that this subject to count uh, is, is, is uh, prejudicial to small carriers. Okay. And one other quick thing you mentioned, and I have always understood this, that payment terms are 15 days. I've been very fortunate with my customers that most all are within that. Some get a little tight and we work things out. If I give a customer a quote and straight out on the quote, put on their payment terms based on 15 days, when I send them the invoice, can I then reaffirm payment terms 15 days, 30, 30 days? New let, me, let me ask you: Are you involved? Are you involved in produce? No, not at all. Well, don't tell anybody who your customers are because if you can get customers to pay you in 15 days, you are a blessed individual. Uh, what is, what well, happens? Rico, Rico and I have spent a lot of time talking together, and I've been very fortunate. But I, I, I definitely think my my years of sales before I started my company has helped. Okay, here's the, here's the answer to the 15-day rule. The 15-day rule is, uh, is, is still in the statute in the, in the credit provisions. It says that uh, uh, the carrier uh, should invoice and be paid, should be paid on 15 days. But as a matter of a fact, I don't think anybody who is, is seeing shipper contracts is seeing less than 30. Uh, I don't. I don't agree that it's uh, it's correct or it's fair. I think motor carriers are working on tight margins, and that uh, shippers can and should pay on 15 days. But uh, ever since deregulation, uh, it's just uh, uh, tended to be what uh, what I see for uh, carriers, big and small, that 30 days is the issue. Now, I, you know, I'm blessed by representing some really large. Carriers and uh, you know they push back uh, when they see people asking for 45 and 60. But uh, you know I think uh, if we took a poll from the people on the call, unless they were in the produce industry, I would think most of them would feel 30 days is lucky. It seems to me that uh, you know most uh, most factors consider 30 days to be the break on the. On the first benchmark for payment uh, as well. well but, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, if I if they'd appoint me uh, 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 transportations, are I'd enforce a 15 day rule. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel I, I guess feel I've been very conscious to work with my accounts, and you know, 15 is probably a little bit high on some of the average. I have some stretching 21. I just want to go, you know, go out to. 35 or 40, but I, I wasn't afraid to call up the phone, call on the phone and say, these are my terms, but I had probably 50% paying within seven to 10 days. Yeah. Let me, let me interrupt you here to say that uh, Rico asked me to cover, and this may be a good place to do it. 
what should a small carrier do to protect himself? And there are a couple of things. Uh, regardless of how small you are, you can get your own uh, service terms and conditions. Uh, don't have to be any longer than two pages. Just basically says that the shipments you handle uh, will, uh, uh, you know, you'll offer them a higher rate if they talk to you uh, about it, but otherwise it's released. That, you know, if it's $100,000 a truckload or whatever is the length of your insurance, so you don't end up picking up a load that's worth half a million dollars and you got 100000 worth of insurance, that you'll handle claims under federal claims rules. It can be very simple. But uh, with those service terms and conditions, you can acknowledge a shipment by sending back your load confirmation sheet that says uh, uh, the load is accepted or put at the bottom of the, of the shipper-generated thing subject to, uh, uh, you know, Stewart Trucking Terms and Conditions, www.stewart.com or whatever. Uh, also, a lot of carriers are asking their shippers to sign credit applications, and those credit applications right. – or just an opportunity to say that, look, I'm going to extend 15 days or 30 days to you, but you're going to pay me within 30 days of invoice, and after that you're going to pay interest and attorney's fees. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you can put in that credit application that it's subject to your website terms and conditions. The reason for yeah. that is when we went through deregulation, the law now says that your service is provided pursuant to written bilateral contracts, if any, otherwise ser subject to your service terms and conditions, a copy of which is available upon request. So I'm not sitting here advocating to anybody on the, on the phone that you come up with some uh, bottom drawer service terms and conditions if you're if you're going to do it, you probably ought to go ahead and do it right and let the shipper know that they exist. Uh, that's what the that's what the big people do. But uh, uh, you darn well need to make out your SOP of this is uh, how I'm going to sell my service and what I'm going to expect from my shipper and have uh, some way to give them notice that those terms and conditions apply before you get into a contractual difficulty. Exactly, and I think that's the crucial part of what you just said about making them fill out the um, the credit application and also being able to go back and periodically, when they sign that credit application, to periodically go back and check that credit because in business we all know things have a tendency to change and very quickly overnight. So sometimes somebody may 30 days from now might have A1 credit and 30 to 45 days down the road could be a, a, a ride on the Titanic. So. Um, I think that's very, very, very good question and, and yeah, and with, a better with respect with respect to the, the, the vicissitudes and the change in credit references, particularly brokers there, uh, I think everybody knows without uh, uh, me divulging a preference, there are about three credit referencing uh, services that, uh, you know, for a nominal fee will put, uh, uh, you know, your brokers on, on credit watch and uh, alert you if their credit posture is beginning to change so that you know you can take appropriate action before they uh, ring no answer. 
and 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 as as everybody knows that's on the line that knows that knows me, I sing the praises of Nasty because I'm a Nasty member. I don't receive any money from Nasty, but Nasty has a excellent program that they already have relationships established with a credit agency, and you can begin to uh, if you're already a Nasty member, you can take advantage of those things and and uh, and, and go there. So we got another caller, Mr. Seaton, that wants to ask a question. We got a few more callers. We're going to try to get to uh, these guys that got a couple of questions real quickly. Caller from area code 302. What's your name and where you're calling from? Hey, I'm going to skip the question. I'm driving for Ben Stanley. I'm sorry? Because the call is breaking up a little bit on me. Yeah, you got a bad connection there. We're gonna try and see if you can't clear your line and give us a call back, and we'll try to get you back on. Um, caller from the two six nine. Yeah, there's fifteen to thirty thousand Scoville units. I think high sauce is like three thousand. Yeah. No caller. But there, there. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Let's see. I think we got. We, we're here at uh, in Kansas City. And we got uh, over 200 truckers that are here in Kansas City at the uh, Kevin Doves, a uh, CMC, a certified master contractor uh, seminar that we're here in uh, Kansas City doing here at the Harrow's Casino. And we got kind of mm-hmm. a bunch of people all over the place. And I think the, the guy that was calling in is listening to us, but he's out in the parking lot, so we might have picked in on his conversation real quickly. But we can pick back up on the Dirty Dozen and, and calls if you uh, still got a bunch of callers on the line. If you got any questions for Mr. Mr. Seaton, hit number one, and we'll try to get to you as quickly as we can. So, Mr. Seaton, we can pick up on uh, Star oh, Drilling sure. Animals. The second, the second one of the Dirty Dozen is a provision that frequently will show up in shippers and broker contracts that will deal with special or consequential damages. Uh, under general principles of federal transportation law, your liability for a cargo uh, loss or damage is limited to what they call the full actual value of the shipment. Now, that means that it's the destination market value, what it was sold for, or if it's going to a warehouse, maybe the the replacement cost. But there is a good side to Carmack, and that is that you're not liable for special or consequential damages unless you accept it. Now, uh, I do some work with a number of auto haulers, and would you believe that in the uh, the hauling of new automobiles, uh, the manufacturers uh, have what they told, uh, what they call total constructive loss, and then if a bumper is bent, uh, they'll require the whole new car to be crushed, even down to giving wow. no salvage value for the tires. Uh, I've seen situations in which there's language in contracts that says that, you know, this is a time-crucial shipment that doesn't get there by 10 a.m., certain they can bill you for the charge of uh, sitting in a replacement. I had one lawyer, would you believe it, call me up and say, your client owes me $30,000 because we sit in a jet plane. So it's just really important to that to you uh, look for that kind of, uh, of language in the contract that would extend your liability beyond what we call the Carmack Amendment it's found at 14706. Uh, uh, the type of language that we find uh, objectionable says uh, something like this. Carriers shall be liable for all losses resulting from loss, damage, delayed to cargo, including but not limited to lost profits of sale, cost of cover, 
cost of expediting replacement, lost downtime, additional handling and shipping fees, and restocking fees. I've had situations in which people in automotive have said, well, that shipment didn't get there, and you shut down a whole production line, and here are our costs. You want to be sure that that kind of expense uh, is not something that you're being subjected to. Uh, on the uh, uh, the PowerPoint, uh, there is acceptable language that, you know, you can cross out this objectionable stuff and put in the carrier's libel uh, for loss or damage in accordance with federal law. Uh, carriers shall not be liable for special or consequential damages. Carrier's liability for loss or damage is limited to the actual value not to exceed, and then you put in an amount that you're comfortable with. Uh, some carriers, uh, truckload carriers, typically have 100000 Maybe if you're a player in high-value stuff, you'll have more, but for Pete's sakes, don't accept uh, a, a limit of liability that's greater than the amount of insurance you've got. Right. I think that's crucial. And another thing that surprises me, with as many contracts and stuff that take place, and even with the bill of lading, I'm always shocked when I ask people, have you ever taken the time to read all the stipulations and everything that's on the uh, standard bill of lading? Or do you even have you ever taken time to, we were talking about the waiver of USC 49, have you ever just took a second to try to find out what is US 49 and what is it exactly that you're waiving? And that's, really amazing to me the amount of people in the of the motor carriers, you know, or small guys that really now have never even taken the time to sit down and read that to really get grasp what it is that's going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's uh it's not something I take to the beach, but I do have a a <laughs> a, a presentation uh that's going to be on Delta New Alpha's website on general principles of federal transportation law. And, uh, you know, it does cover the, the 61 items that uh, uh, that you get by operation of law unless it's waived. And, you know, if someone really kind of wants to go to school on that, uh, that that will be up. They can uh, send you RICO note, and I can, I can forward it to them uh, uh, when the DNA gets it up. Uh, also, uh, I'm, I'm doing a presentation next week. Uh, uh, for the customs brokers down at Laredo, and uh, that's one of the things they wanted covered, which is what is in the U.S. Uh, uh, bill of lading and what are these general principles. So uh, if anybody if anybody wants it, there's going to be kind of a, a ten page uh, uh, outline of, uh, of of what I'll be speaking about down there. So I, I could make that available too. Oh, that'll be great. That'll be great. We got a caller that has a question real quickly uh, here, and let's see if we can get him up. Caller calling in from 612 area code. Caller, what's your name and what's your call? Hi, Rico. This is Ben. Um, I was just wondering, where where could we find uh, – is there a website or um, something that we could find, like, these terms of service? Actually, to... uh, Mr. Actually, Mr. Seaton has written a book called Protecting Motor Carriers' Interests and Contracts. Uh, we're going to try to okay. put a link up for that. And uh, if you got a pen and paper, I'm sure I'm, I'm pretty sure Mr. He, uh, Mr. Seaton would love to give you his uh, yeah, numbers I've to his got, law I've firm. Got, I've got a website that I have uh, tried to build over the years uh, that 
you know, you may cruise around. It's called transportationlaw.net. That's transportationlaw, written together, .net. And that's my firm's website. Uh, when you go on there, you'll find indexed uh, uh, a couple of hundred articles uh, that uh, I wrote for a commercial carrier journal over about 10 years. And you'll find a number of PowerPoints and some some audios on various topics, including including these. Uh, uh, I hope you'll find it. You know, it, it, it's fairly handy in terms of uh, uh, being able to do so, do some research. It it covers a, you know a wide range of things. Uh, the book in particular is a, is available on the website. I think you can download an electronic copy for. Uh, you know, less than $30 or something like that. And if you are interested uh, in the expanded version, which, you know, I kind of pledged to have out by the end of the summer, it's going to go into much more detail on things like cargo claims and and collection that's in the book. The book's about 80 pages, uh, 80 or 90 pages long, and it does have some sample contracts uh, in in the back that uh, – you know, is ready for use. One of the one of the provisions of the book goes into what I call the cows method, which is which is conditions and and website and a POD stamp. It's kind of a, a, a what kind of material should you look at putting in service terms and conditions. Uh, okay. My 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 larger clients, uh, you know, typically have published truckload. Uh, uh, rules tariff that you know I could make available if somebody wanted it, but uh, the template for that is is about 30 pages long, uh, and it goes into the kind of detail for accessorial charges, uh, like you know what you're going to charge for truck order not used, what you're going uh-huh. to charge for detention and demurrage. Uh, I think we all know that all too frequently you take a load off the internet, uh, you get to uh, uh, Philadelphia at two o'clock on Friday, and uh, they've gone home early. Yep. And you find you've got no you've got no uh, provision or authority for charging layover detention. So I mean, you know, small carriers, it's it's kind of hard to uh, to get them to focus to get into that. But a thoughtful rules tariff will cover all those kinds of issues. Okay. And that. And, and I just posted I just posted a link of Mr. Seaton's uh, website on the Rate for Mile Masters Facebook page, so it's it's a hot link that's sitting right there. If you're on Facebook, go in there and click on it. It'll take you directly to the site. Also, Mr. Seaton, you just touched on a really hot topic: um, the issue of detention. Um, we'll call. Uh, I'm sorry, Ben. Did you have, did that answer your question? Did you have anything else you wanted to go? Um. Well, I got one more thing. I'm uh, a small owner-operator, I got one truck. I'm uh, in the process of getting my own authority right now. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, with a direct ship customer, I can use these contracts or these terms of service, but how about with a broker? How does that work? Well, it's unfortunate, but and it, and it may change, but by and large, uh, with few exceptions, the brokers say, uh, once you find the load and you want it really bad, here are my service terms and conditions. You've got to sign it to get the load. 
And so usually you have to work from their shell, and they're not very receptive to uh, uh, accepting your service terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, hopefully as the uh, uh, shortage of trucks is exacerbated, and I think it's certainly going to be, that will change. Uh, But, uh, you know, what I I have tried to do for uh, my small brokers is to give them uh, a very simple uh, broker-carrier agreement that just basically uh, incorporates general principles of federal transportation law like we've been talking about and and, and sets up payment terms uh, and is, uh, is something that I would recommend to carriers to sign. Uh, over the years, I, I've been blessed with the uh, clients that, you know, uh, were both a carrier and a broker or were a carrier and had to outsource their additional freight before MAP-21 doing convenience interlining. And, you know, I've tried to suggest to them, don't give a carrier a contract that wearing your carrier hat you wouldn't sign. You know, let's come up with something that's fair and even-handed to both parties. Right. And covers, covers the basic, but is, uh, you know, something that you can uh, easily uh, uh, create loyalty with the small carriers because you're not trying to get into his pockets. You're not trying to treat him unfairly. Uh, no, right. And, 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 you know, I'd, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, uh, Rico asked, I mean, you know, there is the TIA contract, there's an ATA contract. There are some model contracts out here which are, are, are good faith efforts uh, uh, to, come, uh, 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 to come, come close to that objective. Part of the problem uh, with uh, some of those contracts is they're really pretty doggone lengthy. And... Uh, you know, unless uh, they're pre-screened, it's kind of hard for uh, a small carrier uh, to uh, execute a 15-page contract on the fly for a single load. You know, that the legalese alone. Yeah, yeah, and particularly, <laughs> you know, when they when we haven't even gotten into the uh, additional insured language with subrogation and indemnity and a lot of those things that. Uh, you know, they didn't cover until I got to third year law school. So, I mean, it, it really, uh, uh, the very fact that we uh, can't just agree to general principles of federal transportation law and have to get off the rail into these uh, multi-page contracts is a problem. But, you know, I'm just kind of railing against against the way it is. That is the way it is. Uh, and, you know, some of the, uh, some of the more... Uh, difficult contracts are the contracts from the people that have the most freight. Mm-hmm. The larger brokers, I, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to call out names, but obviously, no. <laughs> uh, you know, you you pay your you uh, uh, you know you're going to. Uh, they're they're more risky proposition. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. If you've got a cargo claim, you can expect an offset. Okay. Well, thank you, Rico, and thank you, Henry. I I appreciate all the good information, and you guys keep up the good work. Thank you for calling. 
Okay, Henry. Um, real quickly, um, I'll let you get back in to start drilling back down on some other things, but I had another question that came up. What about when a motor carrier picks up a brokered load and arrives at the shipper and has the uh, broker's name as the carrier of record on the bill of lading? Well, first of all, the carrier should have never picked up the shipment without getting his name on the bill of lading as the carrier in possession and control. It is a misrepresentation for a broker's name to appear in the carrier blank on a bill of lading. It happens all the time. Uh, Usually the bill of lading is prepared by the dock hand for the uh, the shipper, and he didn't even know what carrier is coming in. That is really bad bad practice for the shipper, and it's bad practice for the carrier. Let me uh, uh, elaborate on that a bit. First of all, uh, the regulations require that the uh, carrier issue the receipt or the bill of lading, right. not the broker. As a practical matter, <coughs> the shipper prepares the bill of lading and the carrier signs it. But, uh, you know, if I'm signing a bill of lading as a driver, I'm not Hank Seaton. I may be Seaton Transport by Hank Seaton, but the, the signature on the on the, the shipping document should very clearly issue the na- uh, reflect the name of the carrier. Let me uh, run through a couple of the reasons why. First of all, as the carrier, you ultimately want to be paid for that load. And if the broker defaults on the payment, you want to be able to go to the shipper and say, look, Mr. Shipper, I'm the one who provided the service. I'm the contracting party under the bill of lading. The bill of lading says in its fine print that it uh, defines the carrier as any party in possession and control under the contract and you're the carrier, you're the one that's in possession and control, not the broker. He's nowhere near the freight. Uh, if you're going to accept responsibility for the freight, you want your insurance company to have a contract that's got your name on it because, unfortunately, there's some scuzzy cargo insurers who will say, we only insured you for contracts you accepted, and we don't see your name on the bill. So you want your name on the bill just to trigger your own insurance. Uh, Also, there are FDA rules, there are TSA rules, there are all kind of chain of custody rules that really suggest that uh, if it's on your truck, your name needs to be there. The the other thing that I think is an important tip, given the fact that theft, hijack, and fraud are so prevalent, is tell your driver, look, uh, if you go in there, this load is brokered to you, by Rico's brokerage, if when you get to the freight dock, the name's got J.B. Hunt on it, you've got a reason to ask. This may be a double, triple brokered load, and we sure don't want to get into a situation in which the shipper doesn't know or care who the carrier is. Uh, I have got a uh, a lawsuit going now for a a customer, uh, a client, motor carrier client, It's uh, over $250,000, more or less, and uh, my client hauled these shipments for a major shipper. His name's all over the bills of lading, 
But now the shipper is trying to deny he even knew who my client was. Uh, and uh, in the litigation, it's going to ensue the fact that I have got shipping documents that had my client's name on it and will carry the day. Uh, as a litigator, I would not... Uh, 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 I would not press too hard a, a collection effort on behalf of a client that didn't have enough sense to get his name on the bill of lading as the carrier of record. So hopefully I've made my point. Uh, from a broker's point of view, it is really a bad idea for a broker to get his name on the bill of lading as a carrier. In fact, exactly. most broker contracts now say that uh, uh, direct the shipper to get the carrier's name because if you've got a big broker's name on a bill of lading and uh, uh, a small motor carrier hits a school bus, you can bet that the plaintiff's bar is going to seize on that to argue that the broker was the carrier. And in some states... Right, it goes back to uh, that vicarious liability you talked yeah, about. Yeah, some states have, have actually held that if the, if the broker represented himself as the carrier, he's got a non-delegable duty... And he just picked up the ticket for the accident. So, uh, you know, I just think it's bad practice. Now, it's done all the time. Uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm kind of raging against the machine. But I think it's not in the broker's interest or the carrier's interest. Obviously, the broker doesn't really want the shipper to wake up and realize that uh, the same carrier has been buffing his dock for six months for fear that the the shipper will cut out the broker and then start trying to go direct. So there, there's some effort in here on the part of the broker community to uh, to hide the name of their service provider. But, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, MAP-21 helps dispel that a bit because uh, the whole issue of, of double brokerage uh, and, and a lot of that resulted from the fact that people couldn't tell whether or not the guy was wearing his carrier hat or his intermediary hat, and now that's uh, that's got to be made clear. Right. Well, wow. Believe it or not, Mr. Seaton, we just blow straight through that hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we got through three of the dirty dozen. <laughs> we may need to continue this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely will. Um, I think we're starting to get um, with the group of people that that follow us and the group of people that participate with us. I think that we we're starting to get people to thinking, and we got a lot of people. And we still had at one point in time our phone lines were up to over 120 callers on the line. Um, we, we tried to get it to as many questions as we possibly could, but uh, I just wanted to before we wrap up tonight give you an opportunity to. Uh, also, again, if you want to tell everybody where they can find you, how they can get in contact with you uh, if they need anything or how you can assist them any further. Sure. Uh, yeah, it, as I mentioned earlier, our website is called transportationlaw.net. There's there's contact information there. If you'd like to email us, uh, uh, you know, uh, please do. If you're interested in getting a copy of the book, I think it's, uh, you know, nominally priced. Uh and, you know, if you're interested in, uh, you know, saying, hey, when the new book comes out, let us know, that would be great. Otherwise, uh, what's on the website is, is, is free for use. As uh, as Rico has mentioned, uh, uh, his affiliation with NASTIC, I have, uh, 
I have been their attorney, I guess, for the past uh, uh, 20 years. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I do have experience, uh, you know, representing small carriers. That's really kind of where my heart is. If you have been involved in, uh, in problems with SMS methodology and are interested in following that, uh, you can uh, uh, drop me an email at the uh, website address for transportationlaw.net saying, hey, ask, uh, add me to the list to receive information about SMS methodology, and we'll be happy to do that at no charge as well. Great, great. Well, Mr. Seaton, I'm definitely going to be uh, hitting you up again, maybe trying to see if we can't get you back on so we can try to pick up and, and maybe go through some other questions. I appreciate your time again for coming on and explaining some of the stuff and breaking it down to us small guys to try to get us uh, to really get us a little bit more conscious of what it is that we're dealing with and, and be aware of the pitfalls that everything is not uh, everything that's shiny is not gold and, and, and sometimes we get confused and think that um, we want to try to get some revenue going and, and we'll just short-circuit the process and not reading everything that we're signing. We just sign away and, and jump into something and not realizing the exposure that we're leaving yeah, ourselves Yeah, the other thing that we didn't cover is uh, the whole notion that most of this is really uh, requires a risk-based analysis. You know, you got to know uh, the, the the probability that, you know, an uh, improvident action or signing a contract is going to uh, uh, be the, the major event that's going to send you into, into bankruptcy. And, of course, a small carrier doesn't doesn't have uh, uh, deep pockets to sustain losses. So, uh, you know, a conservative approach, uh, uh, I think, is, is called for, and sometimes the discipline just has to be exercised this is the case to say no. Uh, I had a, a client one time who was uh, saying, oh, man, we just got this load out of California. It just pays so great. I said, what's the, what's the, what's the product? And they said, well, it says here, let's see, starter jackets. It turned out that the, the load was worth half a million bucks, and uh, they'd gotten a few more cents, but they didn't know what they were hauling. And obviously, they didn't have the insurance to cover it. So, you know, right. you got to you got to be uh, you got to be alert on these kinds of things. Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Seaton, once again, we appreciate your time. We'll be we'll be definitely back in contact to uh, follow up to try to see if we can okay. Get that'll be back great. Nico, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And signing off tonight here live from the CMC here in Kansas City. I'm Rico Muhammad filling in for Kevin Rutherford tonight on the Rates and Lane. Um, podcast tonight. Thank everyone again. In the words of Kevin Rutherford, we also want to send our thanks out to Kevin and Lisa and the whole Let's Truck team. Uh, but in the words of Kevin Rutherford, be safe and master the journey. Good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-PUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.